I encourage you now to take up your copy of God's Holy Word and turn with me now to Philippians chapter 4, and I will read verses 10 through 14. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gracious Father in heaven, with grateful hearts we come before your word once more. And as we do, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to bring understanding to our hearing and truth to the preaching. Bring conviction where we have fallen short and encouragement as we look unto the Lord Jesus Christ who strengthens us. And this we ask in His mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Spirit is willing, flesh is a bit weak this morning, so if I pause frequently for a sip of water, you will understand. As Paul continues now in this letter to draw from this wonderful letter, he draws it to a close and having just exhorted the church to meditate upon those things characterized by virtue, and also to follow his example, he now turns to acknowledge the church's care and provision for him. And as he does so, he finds yet another opportunity to encourage the church through his example and experience and to lean on Christ in every circumstance and to be content, to be content. Contentment, we see, is a virtue to be found in the life of every single Christian. And yet, if we take time to make a serious and honest inventory of ourselves, how many of us, how many of us gathered here this morning would be able to declare without any hesitation that we are content? Not only is contentment something difficult to fully attain, but we also find that we live in a cultural environment that makes this difficult, and it could even be described as a hostile environment to contentment. In almost any endeavor, having a state of contentment or being contented with your situation is likely to be seen and evaluated by others as lacking ambition or drive or lacking a desire to pursue excellence. 
And when you add to that a consumer culture filled with advertisements and an astounding array of products and services vying for your attention and your dollars, you easily see that the marketing departments of every sector of the economy, it would seem to be, are in the very business of creating, creating a sense of discontentment in their customers, a discontentment that their product or service is promoted as being able to satisfy. Are you tracking with me? The shows you watch, the blogs you read, the social media you consume often cultivate a sense of discontentment, leaving, leaving you feeling like your home isn't beautiful enough, your garden is subpar, your parenting is inadequate, and you simply don't measure up to the expected standard of beauty. And so it seems clear that discernment is so well entrenched that it even invades the evangelical church as well. How many of us have said or been privy to complaints within our church in our past or even current experiences? Things such as, our church isn't large enough, or it's too small, or it's too large, or the music isn't to our liking, or the preacher's sermons are too long or too short, or the people aren't friendly enough, or they, or they even make us greet each other every week. Or the church needs to change to be relevant to the younger generation or whatever it may be. The list seems to be endless. Or have you ever noticed how few drivers there are that actually know how to drive their cars on the road? All those other drivers out there are either too slow, too hesitant, in too much of a hurry, or somehow they believe they own the fast lane on the interstate while driving under the speed limit. I see that we have touched a point of agreement. Maybe not everyone can identify with this, but sometimes I'm convinced there are only three drivers out there on the entire road who know how to do it right. Me, myself, and I, even behind the steering wheel, discontent, it would seem, worms its way into our spirit. To further complicate the situation, we tend to minimize discontent and relegate it to a status of a minor transgression. If we even acknowledge it as a transgression at all. But we need to see, we need to see that it is not minor. A lack of true contentment is the seedbed from which sins like covetousness, lust, anger, Bitterness and hatred and a host of other sins spring. It's a seedbed. It's where things grow. We even see from the beginning that the serpent, being ever crafty, stirred up Eve to sin, tempting her with the forbidden fruit. All the bounty of the garden was abundantly available. All of the beauty, all of the variety and diversity but it was the one tree that she was forbidden to eat from that gave opportunity to be discontent with God's provision. Do you see the discontentment there? Do you understand the serpent's tactic? It is as, as if the serpent was saying, God is holding back from you something that is better than what He has already given you. 
Don't be content with such things as you have. Go for it. You won't surely die. So then doubt coupled with discontent was all Satan needed to unleash an entire cosmos riddled with sin, pain, sorrow, brokenness, guilt, and shame. We should conclude, therefore, that discontent is no minor transgression. Not at all. Your discontented heart may be temporarily hidden from your neighbor. Your discontented thoughts may not have found verbal expression yet, but they are fully visible to your Creator. And they are as grumbling words before our God. You need the gospel. Bearing the godly fruit of Christian contentment in your life. And that's what we see here in Paul as he writes this letter to the Philippians. But before we get to see Paul's godly example of Christian contentment, we need to first notice what Paul, what leads Paul up to this very topic. And that brings me to the first of three propositions this morning, which is Paul is joyful in the Lord for the Philippians' care. He is joyful in the Lord for the Philippians' care. Let's read again verse 10 along with verse 14, which forms the bookends to Paul's articulation of his example of rejoicing in the Lord with contentment. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress." I want us to see, first of all, here that the phrase, at last, is not something where we should read into this phrase and assume that Paul is in any way expressing frustration, nor is he using a form of sarcasm here. To the contrary, he is rejoicing that the Lord, in His perfect providence and timing, has graciously answered His prayers. He is compassionate and understanding and thankful as he writes to the Philippians without any reservation whatsoever in his spirit. Paul is deeply and genuinely grateful for the funds that Epaphroditus brought from Philippi. He rejoices not only because the gift reveals the Philippians' affection for him, but also because it displays their devotion to Christ. In the first part of verse 10, he makes it clear that he has been immensely heartened by their fresh display of concern for him. We get that because the verb here he uses describes new growth that we witness in the springtime. He understands that life is characterized by different seasons, seasons of drought, seasons of rain, but now their care for him has flourished. It has bloomed afresh. Their care for him once again bloomed like the springtime flowers. But in his understanding, he immediately adds that he knew of their desire to assist him, even when no gift could be seen through lack of opportunity. Perhaps they didn't know where he was when they had the resources. But we also know that at other times they were in difficult in trying circumstances themselves. 
Paul noted this in his second letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 8, writing, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Writing the Philippians as he did with great care and delicateness, he assures them that not only was he grateful, thankful, but also that he understood what was in their hearts toward him even when they couldn't actually send him anything. In these few words, he is... He is striking a balance between being truly appreciative of their help while making it clear that he is not wholly dependent on them. That is a a sort of verbal knife edge, if you will. The dangers which lie on either side are to either appear ungrateful for or covetous of their assistance. And though Paul has declared that he was not dependent on the support of the Philippians, he wants them to be sure that their gift, know that their gift was deeply appreciated, and so he expresses this in verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. In writing that they had done well, he is saying that their care for him has been good. It has been beautiful. And he writes not merely of the the moral quality of their help, but also of its attractiveness. It was a lovely deed, we might say. It spoke volumes to him of how they wanted to alleviate those troubles and difficulties which came to him as he served the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how our service should be rendered, perceived, and how we should receive the service of others. Do you serve and render your service to others with joy and beauty, even especially within the walls of your home to those whom you are closest to? Are you gracious and compassionate in your choice of words when things don't go according to plan? Do you express appreciation for the heart of the service you receive and not just the quality and timeliness? of the final result. I urge you to consider Paul's example here. And in verses 11 and 12, we see a second proposition, which is the Christian's contentment is not based upon circumstances. Not based upon circumstances. We'll read those verses again. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. One of the leading members of the Westminster Assembly of Divines was a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. I'm sure many of you are not surprised that there is a reference to Jeremiah Burroughs here. 
The Westminster Assembly was that national synod, if you recall, that produced the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms that continue to articulate the sense in which Presbyterian churches understand the scriptures. And our own denomination describes them as the subordinate standards which represent the fullest expression of the teaching of the scriptures. Burroughs was a key member of that assembly, and shortly after his death, a volume of his sermons was published in 1648 entitled, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's still being reprinted today, and I highly recommend it to you all. Burroughs provides in this volume an extended meditation on verse 11 here. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Burroughs says that this verse contains a very timely cordial to revive the drooping spirits of the saints in these sad and sinking times. And he adds that in this gospel text is the very life and soul of all practical divinity. That sounds very much like something we need today. All practical theology, he says, flows from this gospel text. To learn the lesson this text contains is, so to speak, to drink a cordial, to revive the drooping spirits in our sad and sinking times. It is a a medicine to the soul. And it is certainly worthy of our particular attention this morning. Of course, a good definition of contentment would be in order, no doubt. And Burroughs once more is helpful as, as he writes one for us, writing, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every situation. I believe that's a good definition. And we see in this, the bottom line is that you can only embrace this definition, this understanding of contentment, if your redeemed heart and your redeemed mind completely and unreservedly also embrace the sovereignty of God. Burroughs notes that if you become content by having your desire satisfied, that is only self-love. But when you are contented with the hand of God and are willing to be at His disposal, that comes from your love to God. We should note then that as Paul begins to express his contentment, he is not speaking of his need in any way. That's not the point that he desires to make. He is is not expressing some false humility nor is he simply trying to be sensitive to the cultural expectations or the social norms of the day. He is acting and speaking out of a heart and a life shaped by his faith in God and his trust in the Savior. And this is something that he has learned so that he knows it, and not just intellectually, but it informs his perspectives, the motivations of his heart, and his responses to any situation in life. It's more than head knowledge. It's heart knowledge, and it's applied to everything he does and how he responds to it. And therefore, he writes, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. So some questions. Have you learned 
in whatever state you're in to be content? Are you able to say this in all honesty along with the apostle? And do you believe that Paul wants this particular perspective, this learned understanding and application, to grow and be present in the Philippian church? I believe that he absolutely does. He knows this is the work of the Spirit and that it is the mind of Christ to think this way. And just so there is no opportunity to misunderstand what he means, he unfolds the all-encompassing scope of the words in whatever state I am. First, he knows how to be abased and he knows how to abound. Here we see two opposite extremities. To be abased is to exist in a humbled and lowly situation, to suffer loss of prestige, to be humiliated and brought low. And to abound is the opposite. It means to be in abundance, to have more than enough, even excess, to have an advantage in circumstance and honor, to be raised up to prominence. And since Paul has preceded these words with, in whatever state, we can be confident that he intends to include everything between these two extremes. And secondly, he says he has learned both to be full and to be hungry. And I, and I suppose both of these extremes are obvious in their meaning. We all need food and nourishment, and no doubt we can at least intellectually, if not experientially, hear and try to understand how difficult it has been at various times and places throughout history for man to find sufficient food to survive. But I think Paul is touching on something more than tightening his belt when times are lean. It's more than that. Nor is he even re referencing the need to consume as much as possible during the abundant times and to set aside food for the future. No, he has learned. He has learned to be both full and hungry rightly. To do it well. To do it rightly to be both full and hungry before His God and trusting in God's provision from one extreme to the other and everything in between. To see God at work in those very circumstances of hunger and plenty. And third, He, he has learned both to abound and to suffer need. We see here that Paul once again uses the word abound, but the context is, is somewhat different. In the first case, he refers to the how, the how, how to abound. In contrast to his use of abased here, it conveys the sense of how to comport oneself in any position or status, whether low or high. But here, in the last set of uh, comparisons, he writes that he has learned both to abound and to suffer need bringing into view the material needs of life. You may recall that he writes and asks Timothy to bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, and especially the parchments. As an old man nearing the end of his ministry in life, you see the material need for the warmth and comfort of his cloak expressed there, but you also see his desire for the books and especially the parchments. His priorities in and his responses to the situations 
that the Lord has led him to have been shaped by the work of the gospel in the inner man. And that is what we are after. That is what we should desire. That is how true godly contentment will be formed in you and through you. Through any and every situation, Paul is able to rejoice in the Lord with contentment. And so as you read these words from Paul, consider his example again. Think about your own present circumstances. Do you know how to be abased and to abound? Has the work of the Spirit in you shaped your responses to perhaps a demotion or a promotion at your job? Are you able to graciously respond to the loss of work, the loss of sales in your business, or the loss of status attached to your title? Are you able to be content in lean times and in times of plenty and respond to those times in ways that honor the Lord? Are you generous when you are hungry? Are you gluttonous or presumptuous when there is abundance? Are you able to be satisfied with such things as you have, or is there always a gnawing desire for more, for better, for newer, that leads you away from Christian contentment? Your contentment isn't found in things or circumstances, but it is learned and it is something that you know in Christ. And that brings us to our third and final proposition that we find in verse 13. And that is, the Christian's contentment is found in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is perhaps one of the most recognized verses in all of Scripture. Walk through any Hobby Lobby store or Christian bookstore and you will encounter a multitude of wall hangings, artwork, and all sorts of trinkets bearing the embellished words of this text on them. For man, this familiar verse has been distilled into a personal motivational text to help him get through something difficult. But this view is totally misses the point that Paul has in mind. It misses the depth and the beauty of what is actually being communicated. This verse has been truncated, misunderstood, and misapplied in so many ways, it's hard to know where to start. First of all, we should understand that this verse is not a blank check to be applied willy-nilly by Christians every time they face some difficulty at work or sit for an exam or need to get out of jail free card for some predicament over which they've landed themselves. That is not the intent at all. No, the context of verse 13 determines the meaning of verse 13. It is connected to and provides a basic summary of what he has just written in verses 11 and 12. Nonetheless, it needs some qualification. I think it would be helpful to look at what this verse does not mean before we consider what it does mean. First, This does not mean God will in any way empower sin or excuse sin. God is not the author of sin. That comes from the flesh. All things here would never include that which God hates or that which God 
is opposed to or opposed to his very nature. Second, this does not mean that you can do supernatural feats or, or perform miracles. All things are the things of life that all believers are called to do. Third, this does not mean that you can do all things outside the will of God. Rather, you can do all things that God calls you to do. You must understand that all things, you need to understand it as everything that is defined by the Word of God and according to the particular giftings and callings He has placed in your life. Fourth, this does not in any way relieve you of the responsibility to commit yourself to the means of grace. This is not just me and I can do all things in Christ sort of situation. You need the means of grace, the preaching and the reading of God's Word, right participation in the Lord's Supper, regular and intimate prayer, and so on. You need to walk in and by the Spirit and do all the things that Scripture commands us to do, and do so heartily as unto the Lord, in the Lord, trusting in the Gospel. It requires your active pursuit of these things as a believer for you to experience this supernatural power in your life. Fifth, this does not remove your responsibility to confess your sin and to repent. If there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, it will drain and diminish your joy and it will drain and diminish your power in doing all things. Abiding sin and abiding joy cannot profitably exist in the same heart. Of course, you will never be perfect and there will always be sin in your life but if there are patterns of sin going on in your life, no matter how good your circumstances, there is no true, unhindered joy in the Lord. This does mean, however, that you can live your Christian life knowing that the power of God is far greater, far greater than the difficulty that you are experiencing at any point in life. We need to know there is no trial too difficult, no obstacle too high, no temptation too strong, no opposition too powerful, no persecution too threatening. If you put your faith and trust in God and follow Him in obedience, this joy will be your joy and this contentment will be your contentment and this confidence will be your confidence. God does this work in you. It is of God and for God. And as a Christian and at the deepest level of your innermost being, He does this. This is not a superficial work that God does on some facade of your life. Down in the very depths of your soul, this is where God enables you by the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ to do what He would have you to do. And it is both a comprehensive and a sufficient work that he does. It involves your mind, your affections, and your will. Paul is revealing that whether he is abased or abounds, whether he is full or hungry, whether he has abundance or doesn't even have two pennies to rub together, everywhere and in all things and every circumstance, he is content because of Christ Jesus who strengthens him. 
And not surprisingly, we need to be careful not to pursue, embrace, and rest in the wrong type of contentment. Contentment is wrong and contentment is even sinful when it is rooted and found anywhere other than in Christ. You ought not to be content if your contentment is rooted anywhere else than in Christ. Why? Why? Because it is a false contentment. It is a self-deception. It is precarious and unsubstantial, and it cannot last. That's not the contentment we are being called to here. As Augustine observed, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in Thee. Very much in accordance with what Pastor Lovett pointed out in Psalm 37 just a few moments ago. We ought to be restless, discontented, and dissatisfied with every pleasure, every blessing, every joy that is not in Jesus and for Jesus. We may, and we ought even, to enjoy many things and situations and be grateful for them, but we are created for something more, and so our hearts crave something deeper, something sweeter, and something richer. If you believe that you are content, but your contentment is not in Christ, and you're not enjoying these good blessings from God to the glory of God, then you have made an idol of your lifestyle, of your home life, or your relationships, or your children, or your title, or your prestige, or your investments, or your gold and silver, or your understanding, your own wisdom and discernment, or yourself. Just fill in the blank right now. Take a moment. Fill in the blank that most accurately describes the contentment that is in your heart. Does it come from the Lord Jesus? Or do you find that you're far, far too often finding satisfaction, contentment in these other things? If so, then your contentment as such is idolatry. And you need to repent and turn from it and turn to the true and living God and the only abiding source of rest for weary sinners and the provider of that rare jewel of Christian contentment, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord in difficult times. Put off that contentment that's founded in your things or in your status or whatever it may be and trust in the Lord and find true contentment. And as you do so, you will find that you, you can indeed rejoice in the Lord with genuine and enduring and resilient contentment. May it be so. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word of truth. Teach us by Your Holy Spirit to place our confidence in Christ alone and not in the circumstances and not in the people or the things of this world. And as You do this work in us, we pray that 
you would be pleased to grant us the ability to rejoice in the Lord with contentment. Oh, Lord, don't let any toehold, even as we pursue this, this understanding, no toehold of Gnosticism find its way into our spirit, but that we would be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would find in Him true contentment, content and joyful in your perfect provision in and through Him and in your sovereign will for our lives. And so, Father, this we ask for the glory of our God and the beauty of the gospel and for the advancement of your kingdom, for we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, Christ our Lord and our Savior. Amen.